Let me tell you where we are today. We are finishing up our Advent sermon series. Uh, next week, we'll start back into the book of Galatians. We only have two chapters left in Galatians, and we'll finish that up in the month of January. But today, we are on the same narrative we were last week. We're going to go a little bit deeper into it. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you would please, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The words will be on the screen. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men are like grass and all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O oh Lord, stands forever. May this be the word that's faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of eternal significance will be spoken today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today, if you have your bulletin, I've got nine points for us. Now, probably any preaching professor would say, don't make a nine-point sermon. I get that. But these are things that come out of the text that we see are a response to King Jesus coming. Nine things that we see that happen when King Jesus comes, and we're going to see that these nine things also apply to us. So the first thing we see in verse 1 it says, after uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, wise men, wise men come. The first thing we see here is that uh, Jesus coming draws the nations. 
The nations come to celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world. Nations show up. Now, we've titled this message the same as last week's, Two Kings. If you read this passage, it sort of jumps out at you. Herod the king. And then it speaks of another king. And if you know anything about kings, kings don't like having another king in the same area. There can only be one king. So today we see these two kings and these wise men show up to King Herod. Herod's been declared king of the Jews. How did he become king of the Jews? Well, Herod's mother was Jewish. His father was an Edomite, so he was considered half Jewish. Many of the Jewish people at this day and time wouldn't have liked Herod because they wouldn't have viewed that favorably. Herod became king through killing, destroying, annihilating those who were around him. He was a famous builder. In fact, I told you last week if you were here, if you ever travel to Israel, you'll see more things Herod built than anyone else. His handprint is all over modern-day Israel, and he built these things over 2,000 years ago. He built the Temple Mount, rebuilt it for the Jewish people. He built the biggest port in the world at that time. He built a mountain. Think about that. 2,000 years ago, this man wanted to be able to see Jerusalem from out in the hillside of countryside of Bethlehem, and he builds a literal mountain. He was also quite wealthy. He had over 500,000 employees working for him. Yet he was also ruthless. He had 11 wives, 43 children. One time he went on a trip and he told his servant, watch my wife. Make sure she doesn't do anything suspicious. When he returned, the servant had told his wife, hey, he told me to watch you. That's why I'm following you around everywhere. And his wife, when he came back, was acting rather odd. When she was acting strange, he decided to have her killed. This was his favorite wife out of his 11 wives, and he had her killed. His two sons, he found that they wanted to be the next Herod. He had them drowned in the family pool. There was a saying about Herod. It's better to be Herod's pig than his son. That's the type of man he is. That's the type of king he is. And it's into this that these men from the nations show up called wise men. We really don't know much about them. They were astrologers, meaning they watched the stars. So how did God speak to them? Through a star. God so often meets people right where they are. But look, these men had erroneous belief. They believed in the stars, but God's going to reveal to them the creator of the stars, the one who made the stars, the one who moves the stars. God's going to reveal to them his son, Jesus. That's how God deals with these men who don't believe. 
He doesn't come in and say, hey, stop looking at the stars. Stop believing in astrology. I, that needed to happen. Instead, he focuses on come see the Savior. In fact, I'm going to take a star that you think is so important, and that star is going to show you the one true Savior. Matthew doesn't condone their astrology, but he doesn't condemn these men's erroneous worship because God is going to correct that. God's going to change that. That's so often God does. And as we speak with people who don't believe in Jesus, who don't know him, maybe they worship some way, maybe they misunderstand who Christ is, the most wonderful thing we can do is point him to the Savior. Point him to Jesus. And these men come to worship. They would have been a sight to see. They come into Jerusalem. We don't know how many there are. We sing songs, we three kings. They get three gifts. I actually doubt there were three. There were probably more. But these men come, and they would have come dressed strangely. They show up in Jerusalem. Everybody would have been talking about them. Why have they come? What are they doing here? And God, first thing we see today is he draws the nations to himself. That's us. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it speaks of Jews and Gentiles. Anybody who is not ethnically Jewish here, they, they say that they're a Gentile. That's us, or the majority of us anyway. We're Gentiles, and yet God sent his son not only to save the Jewish people, he sent his son to save all the nations. That's why these wise men come. It's good news. It's one of the things I love about our church. You know, as a way of application, that's a question for all of us. How do we engage with the nations? I remember one time, a question Soup Campbell asked me in a discipleship group one time was this. Do you have on your heart what God has on his heart? As Christians, that's what we want. What does God have on his heart? We want to get that on his heart. We want to care about the things that God cares about. We want to make a big deal about the things God makes a big deal about. And God has nations, all peoples, on his heart. One of the things I love about IEC is we have nations here at the church. In fact, I know this about nearly everyone here. You celebrate and you embrace different cultures, different nations, you rejoice in that. Because if you didn't, you probably wouldn't be here. That's part of what makes us unique. We come from different nations. To those who are from Ethiopia, you have maybe set aside even some of your preferred style of worship to come and welcome people from other nations. Thank you for that. I feel welcomed so much by the people who call this nation home, who were born here, who are citizens. And to us who've come from other nations, we share the blessing of that. Many of you have come here because you love the nations. So know this, God has the nations on his heart, and part of the reason is that there's people in the nations who do not know the Lord. We're to have what we call the lost on our hearts. Let me ask you, do you... Do you pray for those who don't know the Lord? Are there people in your life that you know 
don't know Jesus, haven't trusted him, or if they have, it's not very evident. Do you pray for them regularly? Do you look for wise opportunity to share uh, scattered gospel seed? And, and realize this, let me free you up from this. You can't save anybody. Not your job. Your job is not to go save people. Your job is to declare the gospel and God opens their eyes, the seed takes root. All we can do is work the soil, right? If you work soil well, a seed will grow. So we want to be good soil workers, declaring the gospel and scattering seed, hoping that that seed takes root in a person's life. I've talked to a lot of people who come from different backgrounds here in Ethiopia and asked them how they came to, to know the Lord. There's lots of different stories. But I think this is one of the most common themes I see, both here in Ethiopia and from my experience in other nations and especially the United States. So many people's testimonies like this. I came into a community of Christians that welcomed me in. We studied the Bible together. They welcomed me. They didn't tell me I had to have everything figured out. They didn't tell me I had to have all my life cleaned up. I was welcomed into a community, and through becoming a part of that community, I came to know Jesus. So often the way that Jesus reveals himself to people is through his people. One of the, one of the best evangelism methods, I think, is to invite people into your home. Invite them into a small group where you're studying the Bible together and allow God to begin to work that soil. So here we see in Jesus and his birth, or shortly after his birth, the nations come and show up to worship. Second point, in verse 2, they ask the question, where is he has been born king of the Jews? Second point is, Jesus coming declares a new king. Here's the, the reality of every one of us. All of us have something that is master in our lives. We all have a king. The question is, who is your king? Is it a king like Herod? Power, money, worldly influence. Or is it a king like Jesus? I can't even say like Jesus. Is it King Jesus? He's the only one. See, he's a different type of king. Herod brought peace through killing people. Jesus brings peace between you and God that no one else can experience. Other people can experience, but no other way you can experience except through Jesus. He's the only one who can bring you peace in your heart and your soul. He brings hope. He brings forgiveness. I love that Jesus is when he brings us forgiveness. No worldly king can do that. No, in fact, worldly kings we're usually afraid of. You know, this time of year, I get to start on one of my least favorite annual tasks. Now, some of you are going to know what I'm saying. Some of you may not, depending on what nation you're from. But this tax season has started where I'm from. I hate doing taxes. And I always do my taxes. I have to fill them out for the government of the United States. And I'm always afraid of this. If I make a mistake, are they going to punish me? Are they going to penalize me? 
And in fact, if someone makes a big enough mistake on their taxes, they'll even put them in prison sometimes for a while. I'm always like, I don't want to make a mistake on my taxes. Because I don't think our government's very forgiving when I do. They're going to punish me. King Jesus, that's not how I live. He forgives your sin. He forgives where you've rebelled. He forgives where you've made a mistake. This is a new king that has come. Next thing that Jesus coming does, look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. King Jesus coming brings distress to many. That word distress means turmoil, inner conflict. You don't like it. And there's a lot of people that are stressed by Jesus coming. They don't want to give Jesus control of their lives. They would rather hold on to it. And here, all of Jerusalem is afraid of what's going to happen with a new king. Some of you, here's your story. When you came to Jesus, you went home and told a family member. Maybe you told a friend, great news, I've trusted Jesus. He's my king, he's my Lord, he's my savior. And your family looked at you and said, that's crazy. You're leaving our tradition. You're leaving the way that we do life. You're leaving the way that we worship a different style. You're leaving this. You're betraying us. Some of you have tasted the distress of seeing Jesus come king of your life. And for some people, that distress may even keep them from trusting Christ because there's a fear. What will my family think? What will my friends think? What will they say if I say, Jesus is king of my life? All of Jerusalem, they were scared. Are there areas of your life where you are afraid to let Jesus have control? That you're holding on to? Maybe people you don't want to tell that you're following Christ? Maybe somebody where you work or something? No, it can distress people. Next thing, in verse 4, it says, Assembling the chief priests and scribes, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. Fourth one, disregarded by religious leaders. Jesus' coming is disregarded by the very people who should be looking for Jesus. The chief priests, these were the ones who ran worship. They defined worship of their day. Here's how we worship. The scribes, they were the ones who followed the law. Yet worship had been perverted and twisted. The law had been caught up in legalism as they added rules to rules to rules. You see, our flesh likes legalism. Don't do this, don't do this. Well, I won't do it. I'll add more don't do's. And we keep adding don't do this, don't do this. These religious leaders... They made no attempt, as far as we can tell, to go search for Jesus. They didn't look for him. They didn't seek him out. They just disregarded. The very people in the entirety of the story today, the people that you would expect to go find Jesus, are the religious leaders, yet they don't. They disregard him. And we have to be on our guard against losing the mission God has called us to. 
So often in life, we get hit with challenges, difficulties, all sorts of things. But God has called each of us to worship Him and make His glory known amongst the nations, among people who do not know Him. That's all of our purpose. Yet that can easily get lost. Next thing we see, in verse 10, it says, And they saw the star. These wise men, they see a star in the sky. Don't ask me what the star is, I don't know. And don't assume anybody knows. Everybody, you can get on the internet and say, what was the star that the wise men saw? It'll give you a lot of different answers. We don't know if any of them are right. We don't know exactly what it is. God gives us what we need to know in the Bible, and here's what you need to know. God spoke to the wise men through something like a star that appeared to be a star that may have been a star, but it was different because the star took them to Jerusalem and then they stopped there. And then the star moved on to a house. This isn't like a normal star we see in the sky. If I see a star in the sky, I can't tell what's under it. It's so high up. An entire city could be under the star, right? Somehow this star took them to an exact location. This is supernatural. This is like God leading the people in the wilderness in the Old Testament by, by a, a fire. Here, the star leads them. And what we see here, our fifth point, Jesus coming directs nature. Why is that important? Why does that matter? So that other people might see him. God can take all these things and use them. So God directs a star and leads these people. Sixth point. Jesus coming destroys the proud. Destroys the proud. Herod is the epitome of pride. He's arrogant. He's full of himself. He's the king. He builds big buildings. He crushes his enemy. He kills his loved ones. Nobody's going to hurt Herod's power if he can do it. Keep it. That's the type of king he is. He's proud. He's arrogant. And here's what pride ultimately is. I'm in control. I'm the king of my universe. I'm the king of all these things. I'm king. That's pride. Humility is Jesus is king. I'm not. My life is to point to Jesus. It's not to point to me. I don't need people thinking how great I am. I need them to think Jesus is great. My Savior's great. He's glorious. That's humility is pointing to Him. And Jesus coming destroys the proud. Herod, down in verse 19 it says he died. He commits atrocious acts, kills all the children around Bethlehem, but ultimately know this, he dies. And if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel today, you see a bunch of dead stones. And people go, Herod built that. Herod built that. Dead stone, dead stone. Jesus, he was a builder. Jesus was a carpenter. But we don't know a single item that Jesus built. Only thing we have is living stones. That's us. We can walk around this room and go, Jesus built that person. 
Jesus built that person. Jesus made that person. Jesus saved that person. King Jesus builds people. King Herod leaves dead stones that don't offer life. Jesus' coming destroys the proud. We all probably struggle with pride in some ways. Some even struggle with pride in their religiosity. Look at me, I'm, I'm such a great Christian and I'm such a wonderful believer and uh, you know, we, can, we can even take pride in those things. Only Jesus. Our lives are to point to him. Let me just ask you, do you struggle with pride in any way? I venture to say if you're answering no, you may not be being fully honest with yourself. I know I struggle with it. I don't want to. But in my life, I want Jesus to be seen more, myself to be seen less. Final thing we see here. Look at verse 11. It's the verse that um, Steve Bennettson read at the beginning in our call to worship. Going into the house. Now, I'll point out the house. Our nativity scenes, one of the things that my wife collects. When I, when I travel, I bring my wife the same gift every time I travel somewhere to another country. I bring her back a nativity set from that country if they have them. And nativity sets typically have the same thing. They have baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, some animals, some kind of manger, and typically the wise men. But that's not an accurate scene. The wise men didn't arrive the night that Jesus was born. Look at this. It says they come to a house. They aren't in a manger anymore. Joseph has moved. He's settled into Bethlehem. Maybe he found work there. And it says they saw the, what's it say there? Baby? It says child. So Jesus appears to be a little bit older. Also, what age were the children Herod killed? Two and under. So Jesus was certainly under two at this point. Most guess he was probably about a 10 months, a year, and Herod's like, let's just wipe out anybody that looks like they're that age. So they arrive at Jesus' house sometime later. This was a long journey that they had made to come and see him. And look at how they worship. Now, in my Christmas tradition, I've, I've shared with you all where I come from in the United States, the most favorite holiday of the year is Christmas. Everybody loves it. It's a, the most celebrated, the biggest holiday of the year. And what we love is gifts. As a child, I loved Christmas. You know why? I was going to get gifts. Now, the gifts were intended to remind us of the greatest gift in Jesus Christ, but I didn't always look at it. I was always just like, I want a new bike or I want a new toy or whatever it is, and that's how we celebrated. But there's truth in it, in the reality of how this is to be done. They come to worship Jesus, and the heart of worship is sacrifice, giving. If to worship God requires sacrifice. It always does in the Bible. If you come to worship God and it costs you nothing, it doesn't really meet the biblical idea of worship. You can come here, raise your hands, sing songs, but be not worshiping God at all. 
Then somebody right beside you can be singing the same song, raising their hands, and laying their life down, and thinking of God's glory. You see, worship is a lifestyle. We often roam from a worship lifestyle. I'll get up off the altar. Scripture says we're to be living sacrifices. The problem with the living sacrifice, it's alive. You put it on that altar, crawls right back off. That's why each day we offer our lives as living sacrifice in worship to God. That's how we worship Him. What's the best we can give God? Our very lives. And these men, they come and they bring Jesus three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, fitting for a king. Frankincense. Someone was telling me that frankincense used here in Ethiopian worship. Is that right? It's used in the burning in the temple. So that comes from here. Frankincense was used as an incense to burn for worship. And then myrrh. We're told at Jesus' burial, Joseph of Arimathea wraps his body in myrrh. It's, it's for when someone dies. So think about this. Parents, what if when your baby was born, somebody brought you gold? You'd be like, thanks for the money. That's great. You would be grateful for that one. Incense, you might be like, okay, that's okay. But then they bring you something for the baby's death. They bring you myrrh, you'd be like almost insulted. The baby's just been born. Why are you bringing me something for his death? But as we spoke at the beginning of the service, Jesus came to die. And here are the gifts at his beginning. He gets the gold of a king, the frankincense of a priest, and the myrrh of a prophet's death. He's declared prophet, priest, and king. He will reign and rule like the greatest, highest, most perfect king ever. He's the perfect high priest, and he'll die like a prophet. These gifts are given in worship to him. I often compartmentalize my worship. What that word compartmentalize means, it means I'll look at my worship as something I do here, but doesn't always impact my whole life. Our worship of God is to cover our whole life. All that we do. To our young people, when you go to school, why do you try to get good? Why do you obey the teacher? Why do you do well in school? Because God is worthy. To those adults who work, when you go to work, why do you do a good job and seek to do the best you can? Because God is worthy. It's an act of worship. Husband and wives, why do you lay your life down for one another and serve one another and care for one another? Because God is worthy of worship. Parents, why do you seek to raise your children in the Lord? Because God is worthy of worship. Everything we do is an act of worship to God. All that we do. And sometimes our love for God isn't most seen here on Sundays. Our love for God is seen most clearly Monday through Saturday in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our places of work, in the places where you go to school. Because that declares how we worship God. And these wise men 
Though their worship may have been misguided at first, I believe they came to faith in Christ, that they trusted Him. I think one of the fun things to do in heaven is we're going to look and we're going to say, hey, where are those wise men? I told first service there's a tradition that they came from India, um, Turkey, and Ethiopia. It's tradition. I doubt it's accurate, but sort of a fun one. We don't know where they came from. They came from the east. But one day, I believe we're going to see these guys who worshipped their Savior. And we're going to look at our lives and go, God, I offered my life as worship to you. So church, we're going to sing one more song. And anytime we sing, I'm going to call the worship team on up. Anytime we sing, you can mouth the words or you can engage with the worship. The song we're going to sing is, All I Have is Christ. Think about that. At the end of the day, our homes, our cars, our money, our clothing, whatever it may be, our hopes, our dreams, all the things we put in, all that we truly have that is going to last for all eternity that we can hold on to is Christ. And as we sing, we worship Him that we hold on to. Let's pray. God, I thank You that we get to worship. It is a privilege to worship. Forgive us for the times that we make worship something other than what you've called it to be. Lord, there's times that I worship you, that I'll sing songs without engaging, that I'll go through motions. But Lord, we want to be like these wise men who came and sacrificed and gave their gifts of worship to you. As a church, as the people of your church, may we do that well. And Lord, for any here who have never come to know you and experience their Savior, may they know that King Jesus came to die in order to save. May we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.